this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work again. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of, you know, $500,000 to in debt. $192 million. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host, John Warlow. This episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by Prescore. What on earth is a Prescore? Pre stands for personal readiness to exit your company. And here we're looking to evaluate how personally ready you are to leave your company. You know, when you go to sell a business to have a successful exit and look back on it without regret, you need two things. Number one, a company that is attractive to an acquirer, to a company that's built to sell. And number two, you personally need to be ready to exit that business. We found that there are four drivers of a happy and lucrative exit, four ways you can personally ready yourself to exit your business. And by completing your pre-score, you are going to see how you're performing against those four major drivers of a happy and lucrative exit. Just go to prescore.com. All right, my guess is that you've considered at some point selling your company to a direct competitor. My guess is that it also makes you feel just a little bit squeamish. The idea of selling to a direct threat, you've got to reveal all of your confidential information, all your business process to someone who could take advantage of that information if they choose not to follow through on their acquisition offer. My next guest built a company called 360PI. His name is Alex Rink, and he sold to a direct competitor, but he did it in a really intelligent way. He shares some Really fascinating insights. A couple of pop for me. Number one, the importance of leaving a little bit of field left to plow. The idea that there's a big opportunity that an acquirer can take advantage of that you have not already gone after. Number two, strategic acquirers usually can pay a little bit more for your company. And Alex will go on to describe how and why that's the case. He'll also talk about something called staged disclosures, a way for you to minimize the risk of selling to a direct competitor. Here for the entire story is Alex Rink. Enjoy. Alex Rink, welcome to Build to Sell Radio. Thanks very much, John. Pleasure to be so, here. So 360PI, what did you guys do? So uh, we're, a, you know, we were software as a service based in Ottawa, Canada. Uh, what we did was what's called retail price intelligence. So essentially that's having really large scale crawlers going out and pulling in the price information from e-commerce websites, uh, aggreg- aggregating that, comparing and matching products to ensure that you're getting the right kind of pricing on you know, the right products and then providing the intelligence and insights from that back to retailers to help them to price their products and or decide whether they even want to sort of like continue listing that product based upon, you know, whatever revenues and margins they're going to get, uh, you know, for the pricing that they've got compared to the market. That's really cool. So if I'm Staples, for example, I could say I'm going to subscribe and I want you to check out the price of eight and a half, eleven paper for printers. I want you to check Walmart and Amazon and every other retailer and then tell me if my pricing is sort of in the range. Is that the the kind of idea? Yeah, that's exactly the right idea. And I mean, you know, we, and then you've even picked sort of a good area, which is sort of like office products. We did tend to focus on sort of durables and consumer electronics and so on. So some of our customers are like build.com, Ace Hardware, Best Buy, Overstock.com, Home Depot. And you know, the, the one thing I would add, you, you know, you gave an example of a specific product and a few stores and so on. What we really focused on and where we were very good is that we had algorithms and systems in place, highly scalable systems to do enormous volumes. So we had clients where we would be doing over a million products every single day across sort of, you know, 10, 20, 30 different retailers. And, and so... You know, everybody knows about how Amazon's very competitive on pricing. Well, they do this themselves, but most other retailers don't have the sort of technical and financial chops, you know, to invest in in those kind of capabilities themselves. And and as a result, uh, you know, third-party providers such as 360PI came to market to be able to deliver that kind of service for them. 
do you deal with, because on one hand, you're an amazing source of insight for an e-tailer, like a Staples, as an example. On the other hand, you're kind of the bad guy because you're also crawling their site, right? And, and getting their information and selling it to their competitors. Like did that, was that like a, a point of contention with clients? Yeah, you know, from time to time, I think most of the time, really the, the client should mostly be thinking about how do I get this intelligence? Like, I think they just sort of realized, you know, I got a choice here. Either I participate in, in this and I get this information or I don't, in which case I'm blind and other people can be getting it. So, you know, I mean, certainly from our perspective, I mean, we wanted to conduct ourselves, you know, with the greatest integrity with clients. And so we'd have Chinese walls, you know, we, we would serve multiple clients in, for example, you know, the home improvement space or consumer electronics or whatever, but we'd never have, you know, the situations where, uh, you know, the specific information on, uh, you know, that we were doing for one client is, is going necessarily to the other client, you know, we're, we're treating each client, you know, for the, you know, individually in terms of what it is they're looking for and ensuring that we're giving them, you know, what, what they are requesting. And that's helpful. And what was the, what was the business model? You, you mentioned you charge these clients on a SaaS basis or software as a service basis. Was it a hundred percent SaaS? Was there some service revenue associated with it or what was the makeup there? Yeah, it was almost exclusively SaaS revenue. Every once in a while, there was a small amount of services revenue and, you know, and every once in a while there was an opportunity to do, you know, to do more in terms of services. You know, I'll say that, you know, by and large, we, I don't want to say resisted getting into services, but, you know, we just tried to stay as close as we could and focus as much as, as possible on, on the SaaS side of things and try and bundle it up, you know, in that and, and, and the recurring revenue component. And, and a big part of that, to be perfectly honest, was, uh, I mean, you know, just thinking, and, and I, I mentioned, you know, to you earlier, you know, you know in, the, in the sort of like introduction that I had read your book, you know, during the time that I was a CEO at 360. And so, um, you know, just sort of realizing around multiples around services revenue versus, uh, you know, versus recurring, uh, you know, SaaS subscription revenue. You know, what, what I always tried to like, you know, the balance I tried to strike was, is this service revenue going to somehow lead to more business or is it just going to be sort of like a, you know, one-time effort? And if it would help to get the client up, you know, installed and so on, I mean, then obviously it's sometimes, a, I don't want to call it a necessary evil because it's, you know, it's revenue and you're happy to do it and so on. Uh, but, you know, for the most part, we, we kind of try to look at it from a perspective of how do we make this product and and capability as easy for them to adopt as possible so that it does require as little service as possible and that we can really kind of get them up and started and, and using the recurring revenue service as opposed to, you know, having to dedicate staff to them. Got it. And so you were the CEO of 360PI. How did you become the CEO? Uh, because I understand you didn't create the company or start the company. Maybe talk us through the genesis of the company, how you got involved. Sure. So 360PI was actually the third, uh, you know, my third sort of entrepreneurial uh, endeavor. I'd, I'd done a couple of others where I was, you know, a CEO and co-founder. And with 360, I was at a stage where I had transitioned out of a previous business and I was exploring opportunities. And, and um, you know, someone sort of introduced me to an individual who had was CEO of a, a company in, in Ottawa and they had incubated this idea and the original you know, idea, they called it Gazero. And it was a business to consumer comparison shopping engine. So what that means is people would go to the site and they would look at products and you know, search for those products and then see what the pricing was on those products you know, at, at other retailers. And I remember being taken by it because I liked the analytics. I liked, you know, from a shopping perspective, you know, being able to save money on products. You know, it, it had this sort of like mission of like providing honest recommendations to, to consumers around, you know, where's the best place, place to buy products and, and so on. And, um, and so I became attracted to that. And by that point, this was 2010, they, you know, the original sort of incubating company had actually put in over a couple million dollars 
you know, really building out this technology platform, but they had pretty much run aground with it. Uh, you know, they were, they were trying to really sort of drive up the user base and get more people visiting and getting people clicking through, and then you get money from affiliate marketing and so on. And it, and it simply, frankly, just wasn't working. I mean, the, the month before I joined, the revenues at the company were $1,000, literally. You know, and this is sort of like... <laughs> okay. In. Yeah. You, so, but, first rung in the ladder. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, like I said, I, I thought there was a lot of potential and opportunity there. And uh, I had a fair amount of experience in doing a couple of other software as a service or, you know, was, you know, a number of years ago known as an application service provider type of business. Yeah. And, uh, and so it just seemed like a you know, a situation where, hey, they've got a great technical platform, but they're looking for a CEO to really, you know, figure out how to get the product market fit with this business. And for my part, I would be able to, you know, skip a lot of the kind of early learning and so on and testing and, you know, building out a technology platform. So I joined in June of 2010. Uh, and by the way, they'd invested a lot of money and they invested a couple of million bucks. So it wasn't without some some horsepower behind it. How did you structure your compensation? Did you get some shares or some options or did you buy in? Like what was your piece of the action? Yeah, great question. So, you know, at the time that I joined, they had already, as you said, put in, you know, a pretty fair amount of money and they were actually keeping the company afloat with debt financing. So they had kind of said, okay, you know what, no more kind of like investment capital. Now we're going to do, you know, um, and debt financing. And I, Who would lend them money? Well, with a thousand dollars, yeah. Sorry, the incubating company was now putting money in on like a debt basis because they oh, just okay. wanted to ensure that if anything happened, they would you know be able to keep the IP. Yeah, and um, and and so when I when I joined, uh, I knew that we had basically about a year of runway, and and the and the funds that were being putting in being put in were maintaining the development team that was there, uh, and I was like, okay, I've got to basically get figure this out within a year. And so to your point about compensation, I didn't actually draw any cash compensation to start, which doesn't mean that I didn't sort of like account for it. You know, we sort of like figured out, you know, what was the amount that, you know, that I would be deriving, but I was actually deferring my revenue for, you know, my, sorry, my income for the first little while. And in addition, sort of, uh, you know, negotiated absolutely sort of a share package and, and so on. So it ended up being, um, initial share sort of grant. There was the deferred compensation, a large portion of which I actually ended up converting into shares. And then there were options as well. Got it. And was that the part of your compensation, your salary that you deferred, did you structure that as convertible debt in effect that, was that the legal structure or was it just sort of on a back of a napkin? Like, hey, we all agree that, hey, I, you know, first time, there's some money, I'm going to get paid. Well, did you structure it formally or not? You know, if I were doing this again, I would structure it formally. At the mm -hmm. time, we actually kept it informal. And, you know, I think we, we trusted each other enough that, uh, you know, that worked out. But I can definitely say that there could be situations where that wouldn't work out. So if I were doing it again, I would structure it formally. But at the time, we didn't. And it was informal. And, uh, and like I said, it, it worked out fine. So you, you got to get in on the ground floor of this business, but you made a fairly significant U-turn from the business to consumer model to what eventually be, was a business to business model. What precipitated that? Yeah, great question. It was really, you know, it was a really interesting situation because again, when I joined this company, I thought, oh, you know what, we can really sort of amp up the number of users visiting this site. I love kind of, you know, the mission here and what we're doing and so on. But there were a few things that, you know, as I got into it, that, that concerned me. You know, one of the things that you actually mentioned frequently in your, you know, in your book and, and generally in your webinars is uh, dependency. Mm -hmm. And one of the big dependencies that, you know, and, and I guess from my previous entrepreneurial ventures, I have become somewhat averse to dependencies, you know, through yeah. experience. And uh, I'm sure you've heard the, you know, the expression that sort of, you know, uh, what is it? Good judgment comes from experience and experience comes from bad judgment. Right. Yeah, I've, I've had enough bad judgment, which has led to experience that hopefully I've you know, gotten some good judgment out of that. But, but we had a, a, an enormous dependency, which was, and, and, and this was not only us, but basically anyone who was in this comparison shopping engine space, which is if you're making your money from affiliate marketing, what that really means is you're trying to drive as many users to your site as possible or, or visitors. And then they look at what, you know, they're, you know, they want to buy and so on. And they click, 
and then they go through to the site where they end up purchasing. And well, where are those visitors coming from? I mean, typically those visitors coming from, you know, that they made a search on Google. And so we had like over 90% of our traffic was coming in from Google. Mm. And, the, and, and so there was both an opportunity and a threat there. The, the opportunity was to significantly ramp up our search engine marketing, you know, the SEO, the organic, um, you know, search engine terms so that if people were looking for something, we would appear. But the challenge there was, you know, we were at 50,000 users a month. And that's one of the reasons, by the way, we had such low revenue. Whereas there were other comparison shopping engines who had been out for a while that had 15 to 25 million users per month. Wow. So they were dominating, you know, the top few, you know, search engine results. And for us to get up there, we had to either significantly amp up what we were doing from an SEO perspective and or significant, you know, be so much different and better than anybody else in terms of the analytics and capabilities that we would offer on our site that, that we would end up creating sort of a loyal user base that would keep coming back to us. And I just didn't feel that that was realistic in the time frame that we had. I was also back to the dependency point, quite concerned about the possibility that, well, what if Google changes its search engine algorithm, which has been, been done to do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and so, I mean, that was, that was one of the key reasons we started looking around. Another one, which is subtle, but actually was really important to me, was we had this sort of like slogan, which I mentioned, like honest recommendations for consumers. And, and, and we were trying to do that by, you know, giving the price analytics and showing sort of where the price had been historically and saying, hey, this is a good time to buy or not a good time to buy or whatever. So we were not only we were not only saying how the price compares to other stores, but we were also telling you where that price was compared to where it had been historically. And then we came up with this, this novel idea of a deal score. So we'd say, hey, this is a 9.5 out of 10 deal score. Like you really should want to take advantage of this one. Or you know what, this one's a three out of 10 because even though you're saving $50 on it, it was actually $100 off last week. So loved the, the mission that we were going for, but the way that we were making money, and this is again, sort of 2010 timeframe, is by people clicking through to go purchase. So when you think about that, we are monetarily incented to try and get as Give many people, people bad deals. Yeah, to like click through, you know? Yeah. And I just felt that there was this fundamental disconnect or like a lack of integrity, if you like. And I don't say that in a negative sense. I just mean it from a, you know, like this disconnect between what we were purporting to do in terms of mission and the way that we were making money. And I, I think your, your mission and how you make money in order to be effective should really be structural, structurally aligned. Got it. And so you, you migrated to the business to business model. Yeah. And, and I, yeah, I, I would say the third factor is just because we knew that there was a, a limit to how much money, you know, how long we were going to be getting money. We needed to generate funds for the business, right? Before you can succeed, you need to survive. We needed to figure mm -hmm. out survival and there's no way we were going to be able to realistically raise funds from investors with a broken model, you know, with two and a half million dollars having been invested with, you know, no significant revenues and so on. And given my experience in the B2B space, it just seemed like a natural place to go to try and, you know, earn your money the old fashioned way, like actually deliver value to customers. And, and so it just, you know, we started to, we started to approach retailers and when we got calls back, we realized, Hey, you know what, we might be onto something here. What would a typical retailer pay for a 360 PI contract? Like how much would that cost them a year? Yeah. So we ended up, uh, we, 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 we were the premium provider in our space. Uh, we had higher quality. We really, you know, we really sort of like hung our hat on our quality and we can't, we got to the point where essentially because of the nature of the scalability that we were offering, like we'd really have to, you know, put effort into setting up a customer. And then, like I said, also the quality, we'd have a minimum threshold of 25,000 a year, anything below yeah. that. It's not to say that in the early days we wouldn't, you know, do the occasional one, but we got to a point where we just said, you know what, you know, we would, we would put it into our sort of like sales qualification discussions because we just realized like, look, if someone's trying to put five or $10,000, it's, it's just not going to be worth it for us to do. It's too much of an opportunity cost versus other, you know, deals that we can go after. Got it. And the, the investors in the business, uh, when you joined during this time, who, who are they? Are they individuals, companies, an incubator? Like what is the, 
capital structure? Who, who put up the two and a half million bucks? Yeah, so it's a services business in in Ottawa. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, and, and essentially they you know had uh, government contracts and some enterprise contracts, and they had a very um, a very innovative co-founder there uh, who you know, really sort of wanted to do advanced technology work. And uh, he ended up starting up, again, the pre- predecessor company, 360PI, which is called Gazero. We eventually rebranded it, to your point, as we switched to B2B, we rebranded it 360PI. But he then actually uh, ended up leaving the company and going to California and starting up a, uh, a you know, a very well-funded, um, essentially, Think of Airbnb for cars. It's a company called Getaround. And uh, so his name's Sam Zaid, and, and he started up the original idea. And then I took it on and ran that business. And then meanwhile, he went to California and started up another business, which has you know, been certainly successful in, in getting a lot of attention, raising a lot of funds. Fantastic. So what w- Sam is his name? Sam. Sam. So he was playing with house money in the sense that it wasn't his money. He was, it was, he was a co-founder of the service. I guess it was his money partially by extension. Yeah, so, so Sam was a co-founder in this, in this sort of like services business called Option. Option was the business that incubated Gazero. Uh, and there was someone named Brian who was actually running Option at the time. So while Sam kind of came up with the idea and Brian sort of supported it and they both put money in, they were, as you say, playing with house money of Option. And so Option ended up being the shareholder and both Brian and Sam served on our board subsequently. Got it. And, and so what was their reaction to this fairly significant pivot? You come in and say, we're not going to do B2C, we're going to do B2B. What, what are, how did they react to that? Honestly, I think they were happy with it. <laughs> I, think, I think when they brought me on, they were just sort of like, we don't, you know, we've run aground. We're not really sure what to do here. We're looking for someone to take this on. Please, you know, help us Please out. make us some money. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, I mean, you know, when we, when we demonstrated to them that, you know, we were getting traction, that, you know, the retailers were signing up, I think they were happy to see that, uh, you know, that something was coming of the platform that had been built. So as you grew, like how big did you get this before you decided to sell? Like what, what kind of number of employees or revenue or what was your metric for when you got, like how big did you get before you sold? Yeah. So we, you know, when we were acquired, it was in uh, April, 2017 was the actual sort of acquisition date. And, you know, again, we took it from zero to, we got to mid seven figures in, in revenues. We were 40 employees, which 35 full-time and then five part-time, uh, you know, doing some data, uh, you know, analysis work for us. Got it. And, and what did you think a company like that would be worth before you took it to market? Did you have some, some intelligence and some, some sense of what you thought the company was worth based on what you were seeing in the marketplace? Yeah, I mean, just ranges really, not sort of like specific numbers, uh, but you know, like a, a general idea. I know that we, you know, we had the option. It was, it was sort of like, it always comes down to a matter of time and like, what's the right time to sort of go to market. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm sure we'll get into this question, but there was like, there were a set of factors that had us say, you know what, now is about the right time. And, uh, you know, so, I mean, we, we certainly have discussions with VCs around potential financing and get some idea around valuation benchmarks. And, and we figured that those would more or less play out from an acquisition perspective as well. And what kind of benchmarks were the VCs giving you? Yeah, I mean, it, you know, it really kind of depends, but I mean, typically, you know, there'd be anywhere from sort of like 15 to, you know, $30 million type of thing. So, oh, okay. So the, the, uh, this is acquisition price. Uh, I was actually thinking of multiple of revenue or multiple. Yeah, of yeah, sorry. yeah it, would, it would generally, be, you, know, yeah, you know, it wasn't EBITDA. Uh, we actually were, we were operationally profitable. Uh, mm-hmm. So we weren't kind of one of those, you know, really, you know, pedal to the metal in terms of the growth and, you know, and making almost the same number. No money. Yeah. EBITDA. Um, so it was, it was primarily a revenue multiple, but I will say that the revenue multiples at that time weren't what they are now. I think, you know, if you look at sort of like SAS valuation benchmarks, <laughs> I mean, they're on, on you know, on, in the stock market generally. And of course that impacts, you know, when VCs and PE firms are, mm-hmm. are willing to pay, I think they've gone up a fair amount over the course of the last sort of five to 10 years. So I'm just gonna I'm gonna back into it and say they were kind of you were seeing numbers in the sort of three to six times revenue was that ish yeah, right. in that sort of ballpark yeah. Yeah. Uh, 
Got it. Okay. So still like really healthy multiples. I mean, especially for someone that's outside of the SaaS space, that's like an astronomical multiple <laughs> relative to, you know, some other less technical businesses. Um, what you mentioned there were some circumstances around that, that made it feel like it was the right time to sell. Uh, what, what were they and what, what triggered your decision? Yeah. I mean, it's a really sort of interesting situation because we had some really great tailwinds when we pivoted the business, you know, the, the iPhone had come out in 2006 and was really, you know, starting to pick up steam and, you know, and, you know, and then obviously Android devices and so mobile adoption generally, Mm-hmm. And, and I picked that out intentionally because one of the applications of mobile devices was people barcode scanning products in stores and being able to view the prices. And so that really put retailers at a disadvantage. They'd historically been the ones who knew more about pricing the consumers. But that, you know, script flipped really quickly with mobile devices, you know, with the diffusion of, of uh, mobile devices. And so all of a sudden retailers with this huge disadvantage in terms of knowing about pricing. And that's one of the things that really helped us because they felt like, Oh my gosh, I, we need, you know, more current information and we can't keep doing this manually and sending people into stores and, you know, putting in spreadsheets and so on. So the, the, the need for that kind of a scalable solution became very important. I'll also add, you know, there were huge tailwinds in terms of, you know, this is 2010, 11, 12 timeframe, you know, coming out of the sort of 2008 downturn, Right. So, you know, a lot of behavior was around how do I save money? So mm-hmm. I think combination of those two, you know, really, you know, gave a, a big lift. However, if you then kind of like project that forward a few years, Amazon was, you know, taking like over 50% of every incremental e- e-commerce dollar spent. Wow. And we. Did you, you say know, 50%? Yeah. Five zero. Yeah. <laughs> And, and, you know, to the point where, you know, when, when people would do a search for a product, they actually were more likely, it came to the point where they're more likely to start their search on Amazon than Google. Right. So, so that is a level of dominance that Amazon was, was having in the space. And so, you know, we did a great job of getting a number of marquee clients. Uh, we were exceptional in service. Our, our, you know, net promoter score was typically anywhere you know, 40 to 60. Um, so our, our customers were very loyal. We were winning service awards. We had a great brand, you know, like I said, premium pricing, but Amazon was ultimately sort of like sucking the oxygen out of the room, you know, for other retailers. And, and so what you'd have is like a, a growing number of retailer insolvencies, you know, one, and for those that weren't insolvent, you know, a, an increasing number of them were cutting back on sort of expenses. Sure. And so, while we did very well on retention, you know, we typically be sort of like 85, 90% plus in terms of retention levels. Logo uh, or revenue? I'm sorry? Logo or revenue retention? We, we measured it mostly by revenue. Okay. Yeah. So 80 to 90% revenue retention per year. Yeah. Got you it. know, plus, yeah. And, you know, and growing clients and so on. So net retention was, you know, over 100%. But, okay. you know, the, the, when we would lose an account, it was either because, you know, they went insolvent or they were under such, you know, dire financial, you know, in such a dire financial situation that they just like were looking to cut costs and, you know, and then it was sort of like, you know, a, a negative cycle and, you know, we knew they wouldn't necessarily be around. Sure, for sure. So, so for us, we knew at that point it was like, we need, and, and by the way, Amazon, you know, like I said, had all these capabilities themselves. So they're not a logical customer. So at that point, the, uh, you know, there, we felt that there was actually another pivot possibility, not as large, you know, you mentioned before U-turn, it was literally 180 degrees, the first pivot. This was more like a 90 degree pivot, which was to essentially uh, retool the capabilities and offer them to manufacturers. Because when you look at, you know, we would, we would look in our database and we would see, okay, you know what, let's say we've got 35 retailers and let's, now let's look at number of manufacturers that are represented by all the products that we are crawling for those 35, you know, retailers. And, you know, there were literally over, I remember doing the, you know, the, you know, the taking a look at the, the results, there were over 3000 brands that had over sort of like, I think it was 500 products listed. Hmm. So a really significant number of brands and manufacturers that we could go after, but what they're looking for was slightly different and they were not, yet at the place that retailers were in terms of, you know, offering to consumers, 
you know, brands are just a little bit further removed. They were typically, you know, using retailers as their channel. So it's just different things that they would be looking for, which would require, like I said, further investment and, and retooling of, you know, of our capabilities. So all doable. And by the way, other companies, you know, who have survived in the space and succeeded did exactly that pivot. Hmm. But I think from, you know, from our side, you know, this is a sort of like 2016 kind of time frame. You know, I'd been in the business six years and I had a certain sort of equity stake and so on. And, you know, the, the original, uh, you know, and we had, by the way, VC investors and so on. But the original, you know, company option had been in the business for, you know, by that point, sort of nine years. So it was a really significant, you know, amount of time for them. And, you know, given how much they had put in much earlier, you know, we're talking sort of like 2007 to 2010 timeframe, at some point they wanted to realize, you know, return on, on what they had sort of, you know, so I think that the combination, it ended up being this sort of like confluence of different things. Like one is, all right, you know, core market, still operationally profitable, but growth is slowing opportunity to go after this new market, but it's going to require either sort of like, you know, slow organic growth to like fund it from the core business or go raise additional financing, which will imply dilution for the initial investors. Um, you know, the amount of time the initial investors have been in there. We had an, we had a VC investor where we were there. They were very focused on a geographic area and we were their only investment that was outside of that, you know, that geographic area. So just, ended up being a set of different things that had us say, you know what, it's, we should probably take a look, you know, at what, what, you know, the market would bear here. Got it. And so what was next? Did you go to market yourself? Did you hire representation? What, what did you do? Yeah. So this, this happened in, you know, August of 2016 that we had this discussion and then sort of, I don't know, coincidentally and fortuitously in October, we ended up getting an incoming offer hmm. and it wasn't, it wasn't like we were specifically trying to drum it up. It just sort of came in. And, uh, and then we had been like having discussions with, you know, with that company, but you know, we were obviously pleased because, you know, it was at least a starting point. And so, and then how was the offer? What was your reaction to the offer relative to what you'd heard the kind of three to six times revenue? Like did, what did it sort of meet your expectations or was it way outside? It was, uh, eh. <laughs> okay. Not, kind of not, a little yeah, it was like, hey, nice to have an offer, but not excited by this. Okay, got yeah. it. And, and then like, as it happened, we, we then got another inco incoming inquiry sort of like within two weeks of that. And it was sort of like, wow, you know, when it rains, it pours, what's going on here? And, it, and then to your point, at that stage, um, and I'd already been sort of like gearing up for this after we had had this discussion, you know, board discussion in, in August, I was already sort of like gearing up, you know, to, to, I don't want to call it do a road show, but, you know, just really sort of drum up interest amongst prospective partners and so on. Mm -hmm. and, and obviously it, it is super helpful to have, I don't want to call it a bird in hand, but at least a bird that's you know, pretty interested uh, because it made like all of the subsequent discussions that much more meaningful. And I could right. really, you know, talk about partnership, but also talk about the growth prospects and the vision and where we're going and, and so on, knowing that there was this, if not a backstop, an emerging backstop of an offer, you know, that, you know, that we could always kind of fall back to if necessary. But, but obviously, because we weren't super excited about it, we wanted to get something better. Mm -hmm. How'd you do that? I mean, really just sort of like looking at larger uh, companies in the space for whom we would be a natural fit. And, and a number of these, we had actually invested in business development prior. So we had a set of different partners and it was natural to go to some of those companies, but we even extended it beyond that. I had, I had been to trade shows. I had met CEOs of other companies, uh, you know, and, and I would just, you know, reach out and essentially network with them and uh, you know, and then just start a conversation around, Hey, I'd like to explore a partnership and we're looking at our strategic options and, and so on. Um, and did you wor use words like partnership and strategic options as code for, look, we're looking to get acquired here? Yeah. I mean, you know, I think, you know, everybody uses the expressions are like great companies are acquired, not sold. So I certainly mm -hmm. didn't go out with, Hey, we're looking to sell the business. You know, mm -hmm. it, it was, as you said, a, a little bit more subtle approach, but you know, I, I think subtle, but you know, with enough implication, you know, and, it, and actually, sorry, like, let, let me actually clarify. 
it was certainly subtle in the beginning, but then as we'd have the discussions, then I might let in that we actually had received an offer from someone else, which would then kind of get them, if they were sort of somewhat considering it, you know, start, you know, putting the, the thought into their mind. And it would help us to qualify whether, you know, they might actually be interested in participating or not. And did you reveal the name of the company that had made the acquisition offer? Okay. No, never. Uh, yeah. I mean, it, we could have, and it would have added credibility. I, sorry, I, I shouldn't say we could have. I, I believe we were bound by non-disclosure. Um, so I, I certainly wouldn't from that perspective, but mm-hmm. even if we weren't bound by non-disclosure, I don't think I would have, you know, I would have disclosed Would that. you Would you disclose the category? Like we got an offer from a large, you know, marketing services firm. Like, would you get, would you get that specific with them? Yeah. And then, you know, it was a publicly listed firm and, you know, okay. I mean, I, I think there's, you know, frankly, to something like, as you say, marketing services or market intelligence or, you know, e-commerce services or whatever is mm-hmm. broad and big enough that, you know, there's any number of companies that could be represented by that. Who did you think was the most strategic acquirer? I'm sorry? Who did I think? Who, did you, th- who did you think was the most strategic acquirer? Like, where did you think the, the, the biggest strategic premium could be, could be made? Yeah, I mean... I think that at the end of the day, it comes down to, and you know, you've mentioned this on, you know, on your webinars, but at the end of the day, it comes down to kind of what kind of cash flow and what kind of capability do you end up providing, you know, for the acquirer. Mm-hmm. So I think we looked at it from that perspective was, you know, which are the companies that are either looking to break into this space where, you know, they can acquire our capability and it'll, you know, be an add on to what it is that they're already doing uh, or that they already have some of this and it'll be, you know, synergistic and, you know, and, and give them that many more clients and help them dominate space that much more. I will say that sort of all, you know, when all is said and done, the company that acquired us was probably the best strategic fit. And what was this, what, what, why was it strategic for them? So they had, uh, they had actually, so this, this company is called Market Track, based in Chicago, uh, had been a profitable business starting in uh, the area of sort of promotions intelligence. And, and they were owned by a private equity firm. They had made a number of acquisitions, including in our space. And they were actually one of our biggest competitors. So, and, and by the way, this is not the company that came in with the initial offer that we talked about before that I said, meh. You know, they, they actually came in later and we can talk about how we got there. But, you know, what, it made, what made it strategic for them was, you know, number one, they were already making acquisitions. And so it was part of their strategy, you know, to, to increment you know, revenues in that way. Number two, they were already a competitor of ours. They already knew us. They knew what it was like to compete against us. They knew we had superior technology. Number three, they had a better sales force than we did. And so they could, you know, for them, it was like Christmas, you know, they could take essentially our product capability integrated into, you know, their existing portfolio and their existing, you know, and and combine it with sort of, you know, what they're already doing in, in our space. And then, provided to a superior sales force, you know, both in terms of number and in terms of like capability you know, of what they were doing. Mm-hmm. And so they were, they were definitely interested. So fill in the gap between, so certainly market force was, uh, sorry, market track was interested. Uh, you had the, the kind of uh, somewhat low ball offer and you were starting this conver- the, a variety of conversations. Um, did you get additional offers? Did, like, how did you go from sort of informal networking conversations with CEO to, to a final consummated transaction with uh, market track? Yeah. So we started, as you said, with the, you know, the, you know, low ball slash, and I, and I wouldn't even call it low ball. I would, I would say that it was a, it was low ball from our perspective. It wasn't low ball sure. from, you know, from the acquiring, you know, the, the, you know, the perspective acquirer's perspective. I think they did, they were doing what they felt they could do essentially. I care about your perspective. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. From your perspective, it was low ball. But yeah. Keep going. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, and, and I mentioned that we had another incoming. And so, you know, we, we used that for the negotiation between these two parties. And, you know, then I was out sort of drumming up interest in, in other parties as well. I will actually sort of add that, you know, during this time, we also engaged an investment banker to help us in, you know, negotiating and understanding the terms and, you know, keeping us all, you know, like educating sort of not only me, but our board and, you know, walking us through that process and, and, and so on, which was very helpful. And, um, you know, and as I was, you know, as I was sort of like drumming up interest with other parties, I actually didn't approach market track initially. And the reason I didn't approach them initially was because they were a competitor and, 
I'll say that, you know, we had a certain level of concern or paranoia, if you like, that as a competitor, they might, you know, the word of this, if they knew that, you know, we were on the market or having this discussion that it might get to their sales team, which might get back to our customers. And mm-hmm. so on. We certainly had a level of concern about that. So as we were looking at all these different opportunities and negotiating between the two that we did have, um, the, the initial offer was the one that, you know, seemed to be more serious. You know, again, we went and did sort of like presentations with them, large number of their people in the room, you know, felt like the fit and, and all that kind of stuff. So we were taking it seriously, just to be very clear. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, the, the second one that had come in, they ended up dropping out, or I shouldn't say they dropped out, but they, they essentially kind of, rather than coming forward with an offer, they ended up saying, well, you know, here's a letter that isn't a letter of intent, but it's a letter to say we're interested, but we're not going to proceed to letter of intent and we want to kind of like learn more. And it was sort of like... Right what do you want me to do with this letter? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think M&A, M&A guys call that like an indication of interests, like, like IOI, which is sort of like much less formal, like we'll pay between X and Y and, but we need to learn more. No, 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 no It didn't even have like a between X, Y. That's what I'm saying. Oh, it's, oh, it's just very vague. <laughs> yeah. It was like, you know, and, and don't get me wrong. Like, I mean, the individual I was dealing with who was the CEO of the firm. I mean, I, I think, I think he was almost embarrassed, you know, to be frank, to put it forward, you know, but it was what his board had, you know, asked him to do. And it, it, was, it was certainly not in line with the discussions we had been having and so on. But anyway, be, it, be that as it may, you know, just I'm saying wonderful individual, but, you know, at that point I had to say, okay, well, you know what, sorry, I can't do anything with this. So like that's gone. And then yeah. so we still had this initial offer. We had all the other ones that I'd been approaching and we were getting to the point where we were getting close to sort of signing off on that initial one. And, and the other ones I was, you know, using this sort of like time urgency around it to say, Hey, we're getting close. If you have an interest, you know, now's the time to step up or don't or whatever. And the, and the iBanker, by the way, was starting to reach out to other parties, et cetera. And, uh, you know, and, and I, I would say that the iBanker reaching out, that was only moderately effective, you know, because while there's this notion of, Hey, we got this great list and so on, they don't really know the business as well. It's also kind of, you know, they're reaching out to parties that are probably a little bit further afield and, and so on. So, so those didn't end up really coming to fruition. But as we, as we were getting down to that stage where we we're about to sort of sign off on the first one, um, you know, I, I kind of went back to this, you know, market track being a competitor and their CEO had actually reached out to me, you know, like a year or two prior and we'd had sort of breakfast. And at the time I just kind of said, okay, you know, whatever type thing. But I think it was really wise on his part because again, they were acquisitive and he did a really great job of just sort of reaching out to companies in the space and just, you know, getting to know people and establishing a line of contact. And so as it came down to the late stages, I said, you know what, this is going to end up going forward one way or the other. So now the risk of their finding, they're going to find out. So now the risk is lower, if you like, um, or we have nothing really to lose. And so I reached out to him and he said, yeah, you know, hey, thanks. Really appreciate you reaching out and let's have a conversation. And we did. And then within a very short period of time, like literally within two weeks and then sorry, the, the, the CEO had now moved into a chairman role and it was a new CEO. So I met the chairman, met the CEO and uh you know thought wow these these are good guys and you know within two weeks we had an offer from them that was like over one and a half times what the you know initial offer was wow wow and now we're getting into the into a, into a zone where you're like okay this is a fair evaluation this is an offer that i want to yeah i mean it's certainly you know it certainly you know had an, all of our investors you know happy and some of them very happy and mm-hmm. uh you know, it, it just, it became an offer that was meaningful enough that like, all right, you know, this, this is interesting. Mm-hmm. You know, still had the concerns about it being a competitor, to be clear. Uh, but when they, the thing is, when they actually put forward the sort of, you know, the, the letter of intent, I got to say, it was so clean. You know, it was, it really showed their experience in having done all these other acquisitions. Because it's, you know, when companies go for financing, you know, there's sort of like, you know, SaaS businesses or, you know, VC funded businesses, you can often kind of judge the VC based upon how clean their terms are, Mm. you know, and and the more onerous the terms, the more you say kind of like, Oh, I don't know if I want to work with them because frankly, if this is what they're putting forward, it just feels like this is going to end up being a slog for years to come. 
But, and so I, I find that VCs can differentiate themselves based on, you know, nice clean sheets. And I thought, you know, you know, just taking that from an acquisition perspective, you know, what they put forward was so clean, simple, legible, easy, you know, better terms in terms of dollars, less onerous in terms of, um, you know, kind of residual and, and so on, um, that it, it became a complete no brainer to go with them. So what else made it? So if I just want to parse this, this comment around a clean offer sheet, cause I think it's, it's really interesting. So what makes an offer clean? It sounds like they're the acquisition place price is kind of within your, your, yeah. what you think is fair. Uh, the, the earn out component, the transition component, the percentage that's at risk. Uh, are you thinking of that as an earn out or you said a hold back? Do you, do you differentiate like an earn out from say an escrow where it's just really a legal escrow? Like what are you, what are you referring to when you talk about kind of a hold back? Yeah. So and there's probably, I'm probably a little bit limited in terms of what I can say here, but I will say that, uh, you know, between earn out and escrow and so on, you know, I, I could probably say it wasn't an earnout. You know, there was there was a bit of holdback, but it wasn't you know overly significant. It you know it covered their risks. It covered you know, and and it was you know it was it was totally reasonable in the bigger scheme of things. Um, you know, in terms of other elements that were clean, it was also sort of like you know what they were looking for in terms of due diligence. It was the the period and you know duration of due diligence. You know, the original one was looking for ninety days. Uh, and you know, this, this term sheet was sort of like, you know, roughly four weeks of due diligence. So, wow. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. And, and, and again, like the benefits of selling to a company in the space who is a, you know, experienced with acquisitions and B knew us, knew our product, you know, we're, um, we're essentially our reputation preceded ourselves, you know, mm-hmm. in, in terms of, you know, what they were you know, willing to do and, and so on. Um, so I think that's another element. So, so again, you know, to your point, Clean equals how much are they holding back for how long, how long is the diligence period, what's involved in the diligence, um, you know, what's involved in, term, in terms of actually sort of close, you know, getting from where we are now and signing this uh, letter of intent to actual close. Got it. That's super helpful for sure. Were you able to gin up the offer at all? Like they, the, the one that came in was more attractive than the original, but were you able to get them to nudge it up a little bit? Yeah, I would say nudge is probably a, a you know, fair word. We didn't, we didn't end up getting it. You, you know, we, their, their offer was already, you know, a fair amount higher than the other one, but you know, beyond that, we still were able to, to negotiate it a bit higher. Yeah. Yeah. But, but you know, but all said, I, I think it ended up being fair for our team, but I think it was also a very fair acquisition for them. I'm uh you know, personal philosophy here. I think that, you know, at the end of the day, you know, some of us are going to be in this for the long term, and uh, you know, it's not necessarily one shot deals. And I think, I think it's important that everybody walk away from a deal feeling happy, not anyone feeling, you know, like they got screwed in the, in the process. So you weren't looking to drive like every, you know, deal term, every dollar that you possibly could. You were looking for the the triple win, if you will, or whatever the yeah, triple win is right. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. So what was the most surprising thing about the diligence process? They said in the LOI, it would take four weeks. What came up that you were like, that's a curveball. I never expected that one. <laughs> so something that came up pretty quickly. And I, I think that I'm, I'm pretty sure they actually mentioned this before we signed. I, I can't remember, you know, recall exactly, but as it turned out, our acquirer was in the process themselves of getting acquired. So imagine kind of one of these like small fish, you know, medium fish, bigger fish, you know, type of situations. So they were owned by a private equity firm. They had been owned by them for four years and they happened to be in a, in a situation where the, that private equity firm was transitioning out, you know, was going to be selling them off. They had actually been on doing their own roadshow to get acquired and they were in the process of getting acquired by yet another private equity firm. So transitioning from like private equity firm A to private equity firm B. Sure. And, and so when we found that out or, you know, when the, when the CEO shared it with me, which I, I obviously appreciate his, his candor, you know, totally above board guy, you know, this said like, look for transparency, I got to let you know this type of thing. And they, they weren't, 
it had not been closed with the new acquirer yet. So in, in effect, he was disclosing something to me, you know, and showing vulnerability on his side, just as I was concerned about the vulnerability we were showing in prospective competitor. He was mm-hmm. equally, you know, showing some vulnerability by sharing with us, you know, that they were in this process. And their, their close, their, I shouldn't say the close, but it, they ended up determining who they were going to be going with while we were in the midst of this sort of like four-week due diligence period. By the way, the four-week ended up getting stretched to five, but, you know, whatever, sort of four or five-week due diligence period. So that that was certainly generate some additional anxiety for us, you know, in a... How did you protect yourself in that context? Yeah, so I don't know that we had a way of protecting ourselves against you know, the, the issue of their being acquired. I will say that we put protections in, in terms of the fact that they were a competitor of ours. Again, I think, you know, the individuals, the CEO's behavior to share that with us gave us a lot of comfort that this was an individual, you know, who was, you know, dealing in good faith and integrity. But by the same token, the last thing we wanted to do was completely open the kimono on who our customers were. So we staged the disclosures you know, of what we'd be providing to them in due diligence, you know, when. And so, uh, so for example, we could provide them things around suppliers and financials and so on. That could be very early stages. We'd get into, you know, revenues and people and so on. Maybe that's kind of like phase two. And then like phase three, you know, the, the late stages would be more, you know, would be anything to do with actual sort of like identities of customers or, uh, reference calls with customers to, you know, to actually verify that, you know, they're pleased with our service. How did they reference check with customers without tipping off that they were looking to acquire you? Like what was their talk track? Yeah, I think at that stage, you know, good question. Um, I think at that stage, I I can't recall whether we actually talked about, you know, looking at establishing a partnership together Mm -hmm. or whether we were, you know, frankly, just open with the client, you know, with a, with the client saying, listen, this is going to likely be happening in the you know very near future. And, you know, we'd appreciate your speaking with the prospective acquirer. I think in fact, we were open with those clients. I mean, they, you know, they were going to find out soon enough, like literally this is like a space of sort of a week or, you know, week and a half away from when they'd be finding out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. So the stage disclosures was intentional because you were dealing with a competitor and you, you wanted to know if the thing was going to go off the rails, you weren't left you know, having exposed something about your business that you wouldn't want to, would not have wanted to. Yeah, it was very intentional. It was very, uh, you know, planned. And I, and I was even very transparent with them. Like, this is the way we're going to do, you know, do it, you know, hope that's okay with you. And I think there's signals you pick up, right? I mean, I think it was a positive signal. They shared with us what they did. It would also be a signal to us if they were, you know, no, we need to know this right away. You know, the, the fact that they, you know, they were reasonable about that and they understood, you know, they were empathetic about it that obviously, you know, communicated to us about who they were as people and as an acquirer. Yeah. But one thing that I'm, I'm still sort of unclear on is, so you're dealing with the CEO who is also a kind of reporting to, in quotes, a private equity group who owns the, the company. And that private equity group is selling its share, uh, selling its position to another private equity group. So, while it sounds like the relationship you had with the CEO was one of mutual trust and respect, what did you do to ensure that the private equity group, either like the incumbent or the new one didn't derail the deal? Cause ultimately they still controlled the purse strings, I would think. Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, to be frank, we, we had, I don't think we actually had any contact with the acquiring PE firm, or if we did, it was only very late stages. It was all sort of handled between the CEO, the selling PE firm. They obviously had shared with the acquiring PE firm that, hey, you know, late breaking, you know, news kind of thing. We have this opportunity. We showed you our sort of acquisition pipeline. Here's this, you know, company that was one of our top targets and we're now in a situation where we can do this. So I, you know, I think it was, it was one of those situations where, we had to take them on, you know, you know, on trust and good faith that they were managing that element of it. Um, did, did you ensure that the LOI in the LOI, did they stipulate that they had received board approval to make the offer or was it contingent on board approval? Um, 
good question. I don't recall exactly. There was nothing in it that gave us any concern that it wouldn't move forward. So I'm going to say it either had board approval or, you know, I mean, with these kinds of acquisitions, especially with a PE firm, they're typically very involved depending mm-hmm. on the size of the company, the size of the acquisition and so on. So when we were going through that process, not only were we dealing with the CEO and the members of the leadership team and so on, but we were frequently interacting with the PE owners and, you know, they were often asking us for information because then they put it into their models, which they then would feed back, presumably, you know, to what, you know, the acquisition or the, you know, their sale process. And wh- how would you characterize the difference in tenor between your conversations with the private equity group, the selling private equity group, and the CEO of the operational company? You know, they, they actually work together pretty closely. So they had made, we were the 12th acquisition in four years. So in that period of time, they had, you know, gone through this exercise a number of times and they knew that, you know, anytime it was this kind of an acquisition, the PE firm would be very involved. So I would say, you know, while the, the types of information that the PE firm was looking for were, were different, typically more financial based, you know, risks and so on, you know, it, it didn't feel like, it didn't feel like it was a completely different kind of interaction. I mean, obviously with the CEO, they, you know, he wants to make sure that it makes business sense and, you know, operationally can work and there's a cultural fit and so on. I think the PE firms are less concerned about those kinds of things. Culture uh, schmulcher. How are we going to make money? Damn it. <laughs> yeah. No, keep yeah. going. <laughs> okay. Did they, did they play a little bad cop, good cop off each other? You know, not really. Um, I actually found that they were all very sort of friendly. Mm-hmm. Uh, it actually gave, like, I was, I was surprised at, at how much that was the case. There wasn't really any contentious element to this negotiation. And frankly, I don't know whether, you know, whether that to some extent, you know, maybe that was a little bit of kind of timing issues on their side. Like if this had been a longer due diligence, it kind of gives you more time to sort of like dig into stuff and maybe push back and so on. But I think that the four week, four to five week due diligence was in part because they were in their own sale process and partly because they knew us and, you know, and our reputation preceded us and so on. But I think partly maybe affected as well by the fact that they were, you know, in their own sale process. And so it wasn't really in their interest to kind of drag things out. So why sort of like, you know, rake up mud unnecessarily? And, and they didn't do that. I mean, it was, it was honestly like very smooth. The one thing I will say, you know, that, and it's not, a, it's not at all a, you know, an issue of contention, but we have to prove, you know, beyond, above and beyond sort of the U.S. and so on. I remember distinctly we had a meeting where we were talking about, you know, technologically how, you know, we felt that our product was superior and they generally had a notion that it was as well. But there was a little bit of a sort of prove it. Mm-hmm. And that prove it was, okay, coming away from this, you know, meeting that we had in Chicago, they gave us a set of different products and said, show us what you can do. And, and we did, and I, I knew like, and this is midway through the due diligence process. I knew that, wow, you know, this is like, you know, put up or shut up, you know, type of thing. Like we really need to demonstrate that technologically we're going to end up coming up with better results than they can. And we passed that with flying colors. I was going to say, presumably you, you aced that <laughs> exam. Yeah, I want to say that, you, you know, we didn't have some anxiety around it. You know, like we, we knew we had a superior product or at least we, we had every reason to believe that we did, mm-hmm. but you, until you actually prove it, you know, it's unproven. And so, you know, to do that and to have them come away saying like, okay, yeah, you nailed that. Yeah. We're doing the right thing here. Got it. Excellent. You know, really well, confirming. What was your what was your reaction when diligence slipped from four weeks as promised to five? Yeah, the you know, and the slip was actually there were there were just a couple of minor sort of issues that led to the slip. It was, it was sort of supposed to be four weeks, and then you know, all the documents signed, you know, cashing the bank and so on. And the and the slip was literally like five to seven days type of thing. One, there was a, you know, a small I'm going to say small in retrospect, but. You know, when you're at that stage, everything feels huge, you know, legal issue that came up and, you know, it was sort of like, really, you know, and and it wasn't, it wasn't that they were being, they weren't, they weren't trying to like, you know, extract anything. It was just their counselors became concerned about something. I think from a business perspective, they felt 
you know what, this is reasonable, but their counselors were advising a certain way. And then our counselors were, you know, pushing back and so on. So I just remember being on a phone call saying, look, you know, like it was enough, it caused anxiety that it could really derail the, you know, the deal in the very last minute. But fortunately we were able to kind of like, you know, cooler heads prevail. And do you remember what the deal point was? Uh, it, it was essentially around, you know, the, the nature of sort of crawling websites generally. And it was a business that they were already in. And, and there was some new regulation that, that might come mm-hmm. out or, you know, that was going to come out and it, you know, it could cause some concern, but really we were doing the same thing they were. So it was sort of like, you know, if you're concerned about us doing it, you should be concerned about yourself doing it. You know, yeah, yeah. It, it sort of, it doesn't add anything to, to your existing risk. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and honestly, it became like a complete non-issue. And, and the second point of delay was just around cashing the bank. You know, they're arranging, you know, getting the, the numbers, getting the financing through and so on. And, you know, again, when you're in the very late stages and you're expecting that money to hit the bank and everybody's sort of geared up for it and you're, you know, you're, you know, you're gearing up to tell your company and your investors are all expecting and so on. Any delay, you know, causes some level of anxiety and stress. But, yeah. you know, and, and, and you kind of had to say, well, didn't we know this was coming? But, but anyway, so that got resolved. And, and then of course it was the you know, sigh of relief when everything went through. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's a great story and I, and I'm grateful for you sharing it in such detail. Um, where, where could people reach out if they wanted to, to get to know you more is, uh, is LinkedIn the best spot or what, what's the best way to s- send people to you? Yeah. I mean, if there's anything that was useful here and, you know, I mean, I, I'd love to, you know, if someone can get some benefit out of the experience that I had, uh, you can look me up on LinkedIn, Alexander Rink, R-I-N-K. Again, I go by Alex, but uh, that's how I'm listed LinkedIn. You've got to be a Canadian to have the name Rink. <laughs> you you wouldn't believe how many times I've actually got to spell it for people, by the way. Oh, really? Yeah. Rink like a hockey rink, all right? Exactly. Uh, and then I also have a website, which is www.rinkventures.com. Awesome. So it's Alexander Rink on LinkedIn or Rink Ventures on the web. Yeah. Alex, it was a pleasure. Thank you for doing this. Likewise. Thanks very much, John, for, for all that you do to help educate, uh, you know, us entrepreneurs on, on being more effective on, you know, running our businesses. Oh my gosh. My pleasure. All right. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.